This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with a Golden Globe award-winning writer-producer who has contributed to the success of The Kaminsky Method, Bob Hartzabashola, Mike and Molly, Malcolm in the Middle, and News Radio. He proudly hails from Des Moines, Iowa, and shares his insights on writing for sitcoms and the importance of mastering the verbal burn to survive growing up in the Higgins household. Coming up is my dialogue with the always affable Al Higgins. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La, 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 Affable, I'll go with that. I like that. Many people may not know your name, but certainly they know the work you do. And you are as busy of a writer as anybody I know. And I guess I wonder right off the beginning what your discipline for writing is in terms of how you kicked into a gear that you can work on multiple shows at once. I kept waiting for Hollywood to throw me out, you know, as everyone does, <laughs> and they haven't yet. And so uh, I'm going to throw myself out soon, retire or whatever. I've been just very lucky of saving my money so I can choose good projects and then staying on those projects as long as I learn something. And I never want to follow the trap of producing television like a factory worker, you know, just episode after episode after episode. And so I usually do like a three-year limit or whatever on shows to sort of try something new just because I know when I get bored, I get lazy. Mm -hmm. And when I get lazy, I get bad. And you're only as good as your last joke. So I have to worry about my work and keep pushing it all the time or it, it loses what makes me a good writer. Well, you mentioned jokes, of which you're a very funny guy, along from a very funny family of folks that work in humor. But in addition to there being jokes in sitcoms, mm -hmm. it's the situation and certainly more the heart that sustains a series. Exactly. It used to be when you're younger, you go like funny is the only thing. And then as you get older or people beat it out of you, you realize the emotion is the most important thing and the funny comes later. So that's something I've been able to, I think, with my work is keep emotion in it. Even when it's really funny, it's got heart at its base. And that to me, if you are looking for something to succeed as a comedy writer, if you can put heart in your work, you will go places. Well, and the heart, let's, let's just talk about that, what that is, because in addition to it being feelings and getting your audience to emotionally be attached to the story. Uh, it's about real things. It's about stakes that matter. Yeah. With the Kaminsky method, when I got into that, I was like, wow, okay, so there's things to lose here and things to gain here. It, really, that the strength of that armature or that skeleton is the only reason the jokes get to go on the ride. Yeah, exactly. And that's a thing. I've learned so much from Chuck Lorre. And a thing we do in Chuck Lorre's world is lower the stakes. You know, you always heard from network executives, raise the stakes, raise the stakes. To those of you who don't know what that means, it means like, you know, make this situation more 
Like he's going to lose his job. The world's going to end. And when you're writing comedy, when your wife is angry at you, that's that's a huge deal in your world. That's where the conflict should come from. Not from she's angry at me. So then the neighbor's going to do, you know, his barbecue's going to be ruined. All that bullshit. Just concentrate on that tiny little thing. Why is your wife angry? And what are you going to do to make her not angry? You know, and that's enough of a story. And that's uh, the human side of comedy is where the bread and butter is. And, and the bigger situations is where it just goes to crazyville. Right. I, I remember in Pulp Fiction or things got worse and worse and worse and worse for all people, even people you didn't like. You began to like when they would come home from a horrible thing and then you would see them having an argument with their wife and you're like, the guy just had a ball in his mouth and was being, <laughs> it's like, leave him <laughs> exactly, alone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where if, if people are looking to write comedy, write about having a bad time getting a cup of coffee in the morning. And if you can make a small situation like that funny with the little tiny minutia of it and, and what's going on in the person's life and all this other stuff that people can relate to and it be real and also be funny at the same time, that's where your success is going to come from. Everything right should be relatable to people. Even if you're writing, like I'm doing a show now with Nigerians and I'm always like, okay, yes, that works in the Nigerian world, but how is somebody in the Midwest you know, six-year-old white guy going to relate to that. And so we have to humanize it and make him feel whatever you're feeling. Uh, that's a big thing, too. It's like, it, it's don't, as they always say, show, don't say. And that's the thing in comedy, too. You got to make your audience feel these emotions, not just say words of, here, I'm not feeling well. You know, <laughs> show the audience that. Don't just say those. That's a writer's mistake that they make all the time. It's just go like, here's what I'm feeling right now. And I'm going to talk to you about my feelings and all this stuff. And they do this whole big paragraph of dialogue that the audience, other writers might read and go like, oh, that's interesting. But the audience, they're not feeling that. They're not looking at the page. It's just blowing past as words. That's a big mistake that writers make. And also, too, people never talk about their feelings like that. If they're feeling something, they do whatever it takes to not talk about their feelings. Right, right. You know, they do whatever it takes to hide that shit, you <laughs> right. know? It's similar to a drunk who has to get through something. They're acting as not drunk as they can. Yes, exactly. Like, they don't go stumbling around over showing it. What they do is they super slowly try to put the cap on the bottle, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm not drunk. I, yeah, <laughs> if exactly. I would, I'm fooling right. everyone. Yeah, I'm fooling everyone. Yeah, they don't know how right. drunk I am. And I think what's interesting about that, and certainly what I would say I've caught in my own writing at times, is sometimes you have to write that paragraph or that monologue in that way that I feel mm -hmm. this and whatever. And you have yeah. to look at it and go, oh, that's yeah. an indicator. Okay, that's what I need to show now. I need to get rid of all of these words and I need to illustrate yeah. Yeah. in a passive-aggressive way why this person is angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I sometimes tell my writers, it's like, all right, look at this clump of dialogue you, you, you have here. That line right there, that's a whole scene. You know, you're, you're, you're saying this, this emotion here, that's a whole scene. So just make the scene about that line right there. And when you're writing it, you just want to get all the things you want to talk about in this scene out there. And sometimes it just gets too cloudy and too, the audience doesn't know what they're trying to, because you as a writer are struggling to say, what do I want to say with this scene? Right. So if you do do a line like that, look at it and go like, okay, those are three different thoughts. Yes, they're all valid, but what's the most important and what's the most fun to illustrate or to show? And then stick with that emotion, maybe put a little bit of spice of other stuff, but just keep it simple. Keep it very simple. Right. It's interesting directorially, sometimes where you get the most nuanced performances and things that people understand, is you can hand people any page of dialogue and you say to the actors, flirt with them. 
be sure you're seducing them with this yeah, yeah, and it yeah, might yeah. just be yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to get them to pay the bills or whatever but as soon as the actor puts the other intention on it you go this isn't at all about paying bills yeah exactly somebody's gonna get somebody in bed if this works and it doesn't it doesn't yeah. always go there but <laughs> In many ways, every scene is about people trying to get what they want out of somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And everybody should, every character have a, should have a want, too, in your scene. And that's something they forget. People, writers forget. Uh, I was just going to say about acting, uh, when Chuck and I were doing Kaminsky Method, we started taking out words. Because Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin were so good, we're just like, why say that? Just have him give him a look there. You know, and we took, like, like the if you read the scripts... Uh, without seeing the guys acting, they're very sparse. They're very, just very, you know, there's funny stuff in there, but it's what the dudes are doing in between. And they they were just, I mean, you know, you, you, we'd shoot and just Chuck and I would look at it and that's, and that's Michael Douglas saying that shit. And he's so fucking good. <laughs> he has, you know, when you hear this, people say like, oh, they have it. Those guys had it, like it, like giant it letters. And, right. and, and you, don't, you don't realize what they're doing, but they're doing so much with so little. It's crazy. Well, that's the dream cast on a lot of levels. When you have a person like Alan Arkin, you really do have to put a lot of trust. The actor will often say to you, can I just do this with my eyes? Can I just cut? I'd rather yeah. keep the camera running. Let me show the disappointment and not tell anybody because yeah. Watching a crestfallen person with weight on their shoulders is where the connection happens. It isn't, yeah. I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm super mad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it's so much more powerful. It's so much and more powerful. I guess that interests me, too, is that um, Michael Douglas is playing an acting teacher mm -hmm. or coach uh, who whose career has waned, and now that's where his power is in sharing the wisdom. But when Hollywood uses Hollywood to tell a story, I mean, I really connect with that anyway. It doesn't just because it, it does translate to other people whose career has diminished or they've become a teacher or a coach or a consultant. But did Chuck and you create this show together? How did that storyline come about in terms of its impetus? We, we developed it together and then he took off and ran with it. We were talking about doing something together at the end of Mike and Molly. He said, let's let's do something else, you know? And he goes, you'd be surprised who wants to do shows. So we're talking about an actor and it's like, what if, what if there was a failed actor that was now a, you know, he's a superstar actor that we know, but he's playing a failed actor who's teaching a class and he's, you know, big and broad and, and you know, and, and everyone's hanging on his words. And, and so we talked about this character for a little bit and then I was finishing up Mike and Molly, and then he was so inspired by it, he wrote a spec script. Like, he's he's got five shows in the year, and he wrote a fucking, like, <laughs> this on spec. And you're like, you motherfucker. How, you know, like I was saying about, like, I, I work uh, when people pay me. He is a guy that, that he is who he is because he just, it's in his bones working and stuff like that. And so he created this world of talking about age and life and, and small things and real things, things that were affecting him. And... If it was me, I never would have written that show. You know, if it was it was me going, oh, what about the students? And I would do stuff that more related to me. But he went and, and he goes, we have to get great actors to play this or else nobody gives a shit because nobody cares about old people. Yes. Unless they're like so uh, compelling, you know, that they want to watch this. It's like we can't do this show. And so we ended up getting Michael Douglas, who then begat Alan Arkin, who then begat everyone else who said, oh, shit, I want to work with those guys, you know. And so uh, our whole... Cass is just 
perfect. It's great. It's yeah. amazing. And and I think in some ways the casting is biblical because of all the begatting that went yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. No, it's true. And we got the best cinematographers. We got all these people that say, oh, okay, this is, I got to work on this show, you know, for scale or whatever. Because nobody's making money on it. I mean, Michael Douglas making money, but, but no one else, you know, everybody's sort of doing this as a, as a passion project because it's so, it's so cool. Well, you grew up though in a family of performers. The other Higgins brothers are captivating to watch in terms of their hilarity. They deadpan this. So I'm interested how you never got the performing bug out of any of that. Was it because what weren't Dave and Steve um, both in theater? Was your sister in theater yeah, as well? Yeah, my sister or? was. My brother was. My brother Mike, the oldest. Okay. And, and so, and they tagged me along. And I never got the high from an audience, thank God. It's like, and I know my brother Dave does, it's like a heroin fix of, of, <laughs> of adulation. And thank God I never got that because behind the camera is so much easier. And I realized my bread and butter is not being the focus, but stealing the focus. That, as a little brother, it's like I'd see somebody there and I'd have a little jibe and everybody laugh at me. And then I'd go back <laughs> in the shadows, you know? And so that's what I love doing. And, and I found my niche of working with these big egoed writers and stuff like that and stealing the focus for a second, helping, right. and then going back in the shadows. I'm very comfortable back in the shadows. Right. But you're a reactor so. and a responder. Yes. You're not exactly. an actor or initiator. No, exactly. And so right. it's very hard to run shows when you're that dude. So I've had to rejigger my insides to sort of be the driving force because I'm running Bob Hart's type of show. You know, Chuck, Chuck is there to sort of read scripts and make sure I'm not going off in the crazyville. But now I got to go like, what makes me, what makes me my life? What do I want to do? But I still have him in the back of my brain going like, oh shit, Chuck won't like this. I need that sort of higher power to say, to please, just because of my brothers. I need that higher power to please. And I've learned to sort of harness it in a way that has been successful for me, but I have to have my Chuck Lorre. I have to have my Linwood Boomer on Malcolm the Middle. I have to have those people. Probably a father figure in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my dad died when we were young and I was very young. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a there's a father figure thing. I do want to please him, but my brothers have sort of kind of replaced my father figures. I learned early that I was never going to please them with my comedy. So I just went, ugh, I, I'm not even going right. to show them the shit. I'm not even going to, because they were going <laughs> to piece it apart and, and, and just, you know, not give it up. And so. Uh, well, right. Mike, in my conversation with your brother, Steve, he talked about the greatest thing in the family was to burn somebody. Yes. Right. Yeah. To just level them with some simple comment, you know, that that you're, it was the Wild West and that your mom, you know, at some point it was like, oh, God, let him go. Let him do this, whatever it takes to take each other down. Our best moment was Dave had gotten the Ellen show. He was the first one to sort of break out of like, oh, he's got the fucking Ellen show, uh, you know, network television. And he's. He's going to come home as the local boy makes good to Des Moines. The newspaper, when we get all home from Christmas, it's like the headlines like, local boy makes good. Dave Higgins plays Chunky Joe. Uh, and his name was Coffee Joe on the show. So Dave Higgins plays Chunky Joe on the Ellen show. And just having Chunky Joe there, it made us so happy. It's like we could revel in the fact that our brother has a network show. It's that the newspaper called him Chunky Joe. That gave oh. us more joy than my brother getting a job. Well, here's a, here's a funny thing that people may not know. But I know early on when I met all of you, 
they, there was references to each other where, and excuse my saying it, uh-huh. because it's really not for anybody outside the family to say, uh-huh. but it was like Fat Al, Fat Steve, <laughs> Fat Dave. It was sort of like uh, yeah. the Prince of Des Moines. Like it was saying, it was some kind of a, a knight or something, yeah, right? The yeah. way you referred to each other. And I always thought that is so weird. Now, nobody else called you that. You just called each other that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was hilarious because we would do our best, even though you all had, let's say, wore the big boy pants in the family or whatever, mm-hmm. we would do our best. They would say, which Higgins brothers? And I would go, it's the taller one. And they'd go, what are you talking about? I, like, I can't tell them by their height. You know? <laughs> I know, exactly. I know. I was, yeah. I was just telling my daughters uh, this today, yesterday or today that they would call me Fat Al or Chubby. And I said, but it was said with love. And they're like, how can that be said with love? That's that's terrible. And when they said it, I was like, yeah, that is. And it really fucked with me for a long time. Like I had a real sense, uh, low self-esteem and terrible with girls and stuff like that, just because it's like I had, I was a fat kid. I was like, you know, it, it was, it's, even when I lost a bunch of weight, I was like still a fat, fat Al, you know, it's like, it just, it permeates you. But true, I, I never thought it hurt me though. I I never thought, oh, it, it, but it did, you know, I just never dwelled on it, you know? Right. No, we, we, we all take for granted those things. Right. And we look in the mirror and we still see the damaged goods that we had growing up. Uh, Yeah. That confidence thing is a weird thing. It's like, for me, I had to go outside my family and get some success out, but still, I still, and I think it, it, it is from my brothers and constantly, you know, burning you and stuff like that. I have that imposter syndrome where you think you, 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 you're fooling them. They don't know how shitty you are. And I still have that at 52 years old. It's like, it's crazy. All artists do have that. We talk about it frequently on this show about the sense of fraud. Mm-hmm. So that brings up something which is trust. In terms of giving yourself that you trust you're going to to list script by deadline. You know, I realize that you say money is a motivator, but you have to have a toolkit that you can finish the job with. So tell me when you began to develop a trust in your process. I've always needed a deadline to write. I've always, and I, and I always, and I try to fight it so many times, but I always stew on the script, stew on the script, and then write it all in a night. And that's, that's my process. And I accepted that process of my process. And when you're at night, and you have that deadline, you can't, your doubts have to go away and you just have to complete your job. And that's sort of for years, I would just go on instinct of, I have no other choice but to write this because it's due tomorrow. What's a funny thing to do? And just be so exhausted that it just sort of comes out naturally. And I listen to my gut. I have a good gut with that of like, this feels right or this doesn't feel right. That served me well for years and years and years and years. And then it got to the point where then now you have to direct others and teach others how to write and what what your gut is and that's when you really have to go like what shit what is my gut it's like i'm not a good teacher of writing because i just do it by instinct and it's only in the last couple of years when 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 doing my kamali and then now this bob hearts abishola uh i i've had to go like here's what's bothering me about this this is what my gut is saying and this is why it's not good or i want the scene to do this and i don't know why but now i'm able to sort of say why I'm actually now starting to think like, Oh, I'm pretty good at this. I'm at 52 years old. This is the first year I've been like, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing now. I kind of, cause I've been able to dissect what my gut says in a weird way. Well, you're here's the thing. It sounds like you're being able to translate yes. gut to words, right? Yes. And then 
share words, which yeah. is is often difficult if you're working in an auteur method. If you're if you're a playwright by yourself and you don't owe anybody an explanation, mm-hmm. then you don't ever have to do anything. But when you're managing people, which in the sitcom business, you have a staff, you have other actors, you have a camera crew, you have people that the words have to be translated for everybody to, right, to delegate that into other areas so you don't have to do everything yourself. Yeah, and that's where, like, the gut stuff is where, like, you'll see some writers who are very good technicians. They are good about, you know, they've read all the McGee books, they've read all the books of how to do it. And when they do a script, it's very... Like you understand this scene leads into this scene, leads into this scene. And what's missing is that sort of unexpected spark, that unexpectedness. Oh, like, why is this scene here? Oh, wait a minute. It works. And and that's what my gut was doing for me of going like, I don't know what this means, but my gut's saying go to this scene. And so now I've sort of had to piece apart. It's like, why is that scene good? Why why did that work? Oh, because it's unexpected and it's interesting, yet it's telling the same story, but not in a straightforward way. So that little stuff, I've, I've been able to sort of go like, oh, okay, so a scene has to be interesting. It has to be emotional. It has to be all these things. And funny has to be the last thing of it. So I've been able to like then tell my writers that. It's like, what's the most interesting way to tell this story in this scene? And doing a sitcom, each scene has to be its own sort of animal. And sometimes when you write, you go, oh, okay, this scene leads into this scene. Whenever you're doing that, when this scene leads into this scene leads into this, it becomes linear and boring. Right. Why isn't that one scene if it's leading so so well into it, right? Yeah, exactly. And and so you don't need this scene because the audience knows that. So what's the scene after that? Skip that scene. What's the next? And I'm writing this stuff down as, as I'm doing it, but an epiphany I had the other day is, is like when you're doing a sitcom, you can't have a scene that just talks about what we've seen. And writers do that all the time of like, when you went and talked to that woman, what were you thinking? Da, da, da. Don't do that. Don't do the audience already saw that. What moves the story forward? What's looking forward after that scene? What happens? We've all seen that as an audience. Now what happens next? Don't talk about that shit back there. What's going on further? And so stuff like that that I'm realizing like, oh, that makes a story better than just, you know, words and talking about shit. Right. You know, it's funny. Um, when I read people's screenplays or give notes on a sitcom or something, whenever I see words like try he tried to leave the room. You're not doing anything. He leaves or he doesn't leave. And if he yeah. doesn't leave, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what's he doing? Yeah. That, why he's yeah. not leaving? Like quit putting in things where, and, and I think that what's fascinating even about the assembly of movies and television, movies, I think more in particular, because you can go anywhere to a, you know, any location or anything, which in sitcoms we're often restricted by what sets do we have or what do we want to, yeah. do we want to move this one into a car? And, you know, there's a little more mm. limiter, but, but the idea that the human mind will connect long patches of time and distance and ideas and even go backwards in time if we just put them next to each other. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen any of those things where they show these faces that aren't doing anything, but they show you something tragic between you, you go, oh, they look very sad, those people, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You show the, some people making love, and, oh, they seem like they're really, it's passionate. And it's like, no, <laughs> their faces aren't changing. Yeah. It's what we're connecting the dots between. And Chuck Lorre has taught me so much just from working writing Kaminsky with him. If you want to be a writer, go look at Kaminsky Method because these scenes aren't doing anything yet. They're doing so much. You go like, well, what happened in that scene? I don't know. You know, it was like, no, it was an interesting scene that actually moved the story forward, but you didn't realize it because it wasn't 
there wasn't pipe there saying, you know, oh, here's what I'm feeling and here's what I'm going to do next. It's like the emotion of the character moved you through the show. And uh, Bob Odenkirk, once it came out, he came up to Chuck and I and he goes, how'd you do that? How did you, you know, write that? How did you? And, and I will say this, it came from Chuck's gut. I was there to help along and, and push it and go to, he likes me because I can go to weird places and push the ball with him. I'm not a guy that's going to go like, I don't know, Chuck, I don't know if you should go there. I, oh, he's going there? Fuck, let's make it funny. Let's do it. You know, I help him push that ball. That's why he likes working with me. That pure instinct of him, I was able to, those first two seasons of Kaminsky, watch his process and watch him do that and go like, holy shit. He's such a good writer. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize how, because of Two and a Half Men and all these other things, you think like, oh, he's, you know, whatever. But he's a really good writer. And I've I learned so much that now I'm taking to other shows, you know. Well, in that show particular, The Comiska Method, he seems to trust and honor the real emotions as opposed to the early sitcom approaches, right? Where it was definitely more shtick per square inch. Yeah, yeah, and this it, it's all about, is this real? Is this grounded? Is this, would people really do that? Would people really say that? And that's sometimes, too, when people are writing their spec comedy thing, it's like, nobody would. If somebody said that to somebody in a room, the other person would punch them in the mouth. You know, it's like, come on, what would a real reaction to that thing be? Then, then follow that. Don't just put these lines out because they're pithy. Have a real conversation and, and have these two people in a real scene together and what's the real of it. And that's where comedy comes from is the real and the grounded. Even, you know, you worked on um, Seinfeld, but like all those scenes, it came from the truth of these people. All their, Even when it went wacky, it stayed true to their truth, who these people were, who these characters were. And, and, and it might have been a show about nothing, but everybody was grounded. You know who everybody was and you knew when they made an action. It might be crazy, but you saw where George doing that crazy thing came from from a real place within himself, even though it was a, a wacky thing that happened. Right, often an insecurity or selfish motivation yeah, or some yeah, other reason, yeah. but when it would get them into a, a bit of a snafu. Uh, I'm fascinated by the early on the storyline where Alan Arkin had lost his wife, mm -hmm. and that's a really fabulous device because she's appearing in the scenes, but he's talking to himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a sort of a modern way of handling a soliloquy in a way, which is him to emotionally process that. Uh, and that's, to me, that's the actors also honoring grief and loss and so forth. So uh, that came about because Chuck wrote that first Kaminsky and he didn't know where it was going to go. That's why each scene is sort of, you don't know where their story's going because he didn't. And he killed off the wife at the end of the episode, which he introduced her and, and you love this character and you're like, really, dude, you're killing her off? He's like, that's what happened. And it shouldn't have happened at the end of that pilot. Like now you know, and then it's like, oh, it's great and stuff like that. It's like, when that happened, it's like, oh shit, why would you kill off a character that's so well-defined so quickly? You know, what are you doing there? But his instinct sent him there. And that's the way it became a love story between Alan Arkin and, and Michael Douglas. Cause she sort right. of said, take care of each other. And sent them on, you know, and looking back, you're like, oh, my God, that's that's so great. It, it, but he was just writing it, and that's where the story went. And the talking to his wife was actually from, it was sad, but but my father-in-law, his wife passed while we're starting the season. And he told my wife that he would go out and have a drink with her every night, you know, and look out on mm. the, and, and, in Florida. And I was like, oh, my God. And it brought to the chuck of, like, you know, I hated taking notes on the guy's grief, but it's like... He does this. He sits and has a conversation. And you go, you would. You've been with somebody that long and it's ingrained in you. You would still talk to them. You would still have that. Yeah. 
you know, just those grooves in your brain to sort of talk to them. My mom does a similar thing. My dad passed a couple of years ago. What is fascinating is that uh, she knows he's gone and she, um, you know, she, she can tell the difference when she visits his grave site at the military graveyard uh, versus when she's having a conversation at home on the couch. What was really fascinating that is slightly humorous, this you can appreciate because humor is at the core of even the most difficult of times, is that she was really big on organ donor cards. We all had to sign our organ donor cards <laughs> like that. as soon as we got our driver's <laughs> license, which meant we yeah. ate every meal and, and were afraid we were going to get our organs harvested yeah. if we slept with sure. both yeah. eyes closed. <laughs> so we often would joke with her about that. And my dad, when he passed, he was so old that everything had deteriorated. All organs had deteriorated. His hearing was gone. His eyesight, like there was nothing to give. I mean, and he had also gotten so frail that it lost so much weight. It was like, what's going to happen here, right? And she followed through and donated his body to this Creighton Dental School because over all those years, he had everything in his mouth. He had cavities, wisdom teeth, root canal, like a year's worth of study from one guy's oh, teeth. Oh, that's right? great. He's got every, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they also didn't turn the body back over for a year because they, until they're done with what they're doing, and then they cremated him. And so th- they have the remains, which if you've ever seen that is kind of a, it's not really dust. It's a little bit more like a sand kind of, you know, it's bones ground up and so forth. So apparently they mailed that to her. And so when I called that day, she goes, you'll never guess who I've got in the dining room. And I'm like, I don't know, your neighbor. Like, I'm, she said, yeah. no, your father's on the buffet. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm. I, uh, we're going to have dinner together tonight. You know, and I was like, oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it was really sweet because it yeah. was like a year since he had passed. Oh, and great. then he that's arrived sweet. on the doorstep by U- U.S. mail and they had dinner together. That's so sweet. You know, she was really, it was very elegant and very tasteful and she had grace about it. Yeah. But she says, your dad's here. And I'm like, okay, all right. I understand <laughs> what you mean, but. Let her have it. Yeah. That's the thing, too. We never played her as a ghost. It was always in his consciousness. It yeah, was always smart. like him, him talking through things himself. And 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 it would never be something that he wouldn't, it wouldn't have, it never was something that wouldn't have come out of his own brain. You know what I mean? Like forgiving his drunk daughter and all that stuff. He knew it was there. It was, you know, just she was the impetus to sort of push him that way. It was a, it was a great device. You know, it turned out really well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think again, what's funny is, is that there are a lot of people that can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's been loss, and you've had certainly loss in your life in both parents. But at different times, you realize, wow, this is this changes where I am in a family and where I am in the world. Yeah. Ma Higgins was such a great support. I met her, I think, at your house. Oh yeah. Well, it was like a. A holiday and it in was LA or something or, or it was or, a card night it was in LA yeah, okay I, I remember a few times being at your house once when I had uh, my f- f- first son was born and we were over there for some reason and we were holding but somebody over the card table sniffed the baby's head and said I love the smell of babies they smell like baked potatoes <laughs> you know it's like for some reason that evocative <laughs> memory comes from being in your dining That's room so and funny. one of your f- odd friends smelling the baby's yeah. head. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, you know, That's and I don't know who that was, but it. Yeah, I have no idea. Talk about those formative years, also, just in terms of 
the, not just the competition within the household, but what that was like. Okay, you're growing up, really, your teenage years without your dad. And mm. was everybody just, was it chaos or was there some orchestrated sense of um, people were kind of finding their own way or what? It was chaos, but it was also a haven because we, we took in a lot of strays, you know, Gruber, Keith Petrick. People would come to our house because... It might have been chaotic with four boys and, and, and everything, but it was it was a safe haven. There was no there was no malice in our house. There was no fighting. There was I mean, there was fighting, but not like we took pot shot, shots at ourselves with verbal. It was more verbal sparring than than true and uh, true physical uh, conflicts. But that verbal sparring, it, 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 you know, it's just you if you could burn like you're saying the burn, if you could get one up on somebody and everybody laughs and that person is just diminished just a little bit. That's a huge joy. It's like, I can't describe it. It's just like, it's like they can't, they have no comeback. They have nothing. It's like you, you've, you've disarmed them with your words and, and you just ride that high for a little while until then they, you know, throw something at you or do something. This is a different subject, but I know it's a place that gives you respite is Italy. Uh And I wanted to ask about, you've taken many, many junkets to Italy when you're on a hiatus or Mm -hmm. taking a break. You know, tell me about the allure of Italy and what it's like when you're there in terms of resetting yourself. When I'm working on a show, you got to do 22 episodes, 24 episodes. It's, it's truly a all consuming grind. And for nine months, you, you're, you're devoting your life and, and taking away from your family a bit and, and, and sort of doing that. And so when you have that break between seasons, you're like, I want to do something special. I, wanna, I, I, I needed a carrot on the stick to get me through the rough patches of a season. And renting a villa in Italy was like, oh, my God, I have the money now to rent a villa. I've always heard about rich people taking in, doing this stuff. So I started doing that and... There's two things I love is my family and Italy. And I was like, oh, you know what? If I rent these big villas, people will be forced to come and, and hang out and and we can be family together in Italy. And so I started doing that and this family started coming. And we've been to Italy so many fucking times. But what it does is Italians know how to live life. They know what's important in life. Food, family, camaraderie. You know, it, it, it's it's not about the grind of of capitalism and stuff like that. It's about enjoying life, enjoying good food. And in Italy, I don't care who you are, if you go there, you can see like, oh, the food is so – it's all about taking a nap and eating and, and, and taking a walk. My brother Mike went to Bologna. Mike's wife, Nancy's cousin, married an Italian who lived in Bologna. And they said, do you want some watermelon? And they go, sure. And they go, we got a watermelon guy. And so they took this 45-minute drive up into the mountains and to get the guy who grew the best watermelons. And this guy, his whole life was just growing the best watermelon. And he was so happy. And people were happy that they could eat this guy's watermelon. And it was, and my brother said it was the best watermelon I ever had. But it's like, that's Italy, where people can take joy in growing a delicious watermelon. And that's so anti-US, it would be like, how can that guy, you know, sell these watermelons to Milan? How can they make more money with these watermelons? How can we, you know, make that, you know, like a KFC of watermelon, you know, and, 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 and hopefully with this pandemic, where we don't know what the future is, we don't know what the next steps, people in the US can grow a good, 
like can be happy about growing a delicious watermelon. And that can be their sort of like, because uh, you've sort of found out what's important with this pandemic in your life. And, and it sort of took people off the treadmill a little bit to sort of relax and go like, maybe I'll bake some bread. Maybe I'll, you know, it, it really centered the people that, that aren't depressed and, and can't pay rent and all that other shit. But it, it really, I think hopefully it would have centered people and, and sort of people would see what's important. In terms of translating your creativity to other things mm -hmm. besides writing, do you have interest in photography or painting or art or any, is there anything else that you do to express yourself creatively? Oh, I wish there was, but uh, food, food. I love food. I make pizzas. I have a pizza oven. So yeah, I guess that I do. Uh, I, I love cooking and travel. Um, those are my two passions. When I was, I remember, and I don't know if you do, maybe you can tell me, I remember it, at 17 or 18, my first solo airline flight, looking out of the window and just thinking, yeah. I'm doing it. I'm going yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Nobody can stop this. It was um, wild. I was yeah, 18 going to New York. I was like, oh my God, this is, it, it, I'm doing what other people I read about do. You know, it's that kind of thing where you're like, wait, I'm doing, wait, I'm one of those people now. I'm a traveling guy. You know, it's like, it, it's just... It's so cool. Have you been able to take your sons to Italy? Have you done the villa? Have you done? No, the I want to take them very, very oh, badly. It's not that expensive. Like renting a house is so much cheaper than a, a hotel. It's and and there's and I have a friend that rents a villa. I'm gonna ask him when he's um, yeah, yeah, talking exactly. about you. Oh, I'm talking. About, <laughs> <laughs> you let us know when you're there, and we'll swing over. Well, see, if the first Italian thing, it's like you should do a couple cities. Like, like here's what I do. I. I stay in one place and take day trips, and that's what I love. I'll do like two weeks, stay in a villa, two weeks, take day trips. When, when you do your first day, people always want to do Rome, and then I'm going to Venice, and da, 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 it's like you're going to kill yourself. You're going to come back to Italy. Just just, just take three or four days in places because when you go to Italy, what you want to do is you my, – my whole goal on these vacations is to be bored in Italy. That's my goal is to get to a point where I'm bored. Cause then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to read that book. I'm going to, you know, it's like, like, but I'm reading a book in Italy, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I got nothing else to do today. So I'm going to stroll into town and have a fucking coffee that I never would do. And, you know, just have a little espresso because I'm bored. It's like, like the, people just try to see all the museums and all the thing and have this, da, 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 have this huge schedule. It's like, dude, you don't want that. You want to live like an Italian for a little bit. I love the Tuscany region. I love the, oh, you so know, yeah. Siena and all of that area. But what, Part of what I love is that they're, the Tuscan cooking is what's in season and what do we have right yeah. now? Oh, yeah. You know, that that's sort of a nice sustainable way to thrive. But also the Cinque Terre area along the mm -hmm. coast, yeah. um, those five little cities. Boy, we, we went and without any reservations or anything, we showed up early in the day and there were, hey, you can rent these two rooms in our house and we're like okay you know and then the next morning you're smelling fresh bread being baked right outside at the bakery what you just said about the the seasonal thing it's like and that, that hopefully relates to everything we're talking about is they're living in the moment in italy they're 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 eating what's in season right now. They're not lamenting about the tomato they had two weeks ago. Yeah, they're not saying like, how can we keep these asparagus so we can eat them in December? They're living in the moment, and that carries over the pandemic of we've all been forced to live in the moment. And and for planners, it fucks with them. For people dwelling about the good old days, that fucks with them. You have you. It's forced everyone to live in the moment, and that and that's been frightening to people. 
other people it's been liberating other you know but but that's the sort of italian thing is is you live every day in the moment of what's in season or what am i going to do today and and it's it's just wonderful right so i say forget about the new normal think about the new now like what are you going to do yeah. now at the moment yeah right yeah. now right now and that's what i tell my daughter who's who's in college it's like and and it's so you know you can say this with words and they have to feel it but it's like don't worry about what your future holds because nobody knows. Zero. And then, and that's through the whole world. It's not just like your friends don't know. Like we don't know what the industries will be next year. We don't know anything. And use that to your advantage of you know how to talk to people. You know, you're personable. You, you're a person when they hand you something, you're going to do the work. Like you have a set of skills that are going to be so useful in that world. Yeah, you didn't go to Ivy League college. You had didn't do this, but that doesn't that all that is going out the window because those jobs are gone. So it's like if you can live and adapt and live in the moment, you're gonna you're gonna go places. We don't know what those places are, but you're gonna be able to adapt and and survive. Yeah, it's really it, it is probably the blessing of all of this is you know we do see tragedy. We see people passing away. We see people's uh, losing an industry or or losing a restaurant or losing whatever it is that they have their livelihood. But I really do think that the survivors are the people who are um, attentive to their heart and to the people around them. So to me, the new sign of success is to be significant, mm -hmm. to be available or present for other folks or, you know, to sort of be of service mm -hmm. because it does feel the most rewarding yeah. To be of service to others. Because you're not going to get the money, you know, so you might as well get something out of it, you know. <laughs> Doing things for others and, and helping people is great. It's so wonderful to, to be able to do that and to have enough sort of unselfishness to do that is a blessing too. It's like hopefully it's taken a lot of selfishness out of people. And, and it's it, this sort of has forced at least some good people to go like, wait, I got to think about others now. I got to think outside myself. The work that you do in storytelling and in heart and humor coming to folks does offer quite a bit of um, a release and escape for people. And I think that the more uh, that you honor the truth in your writing and you continue to get those stories out there that are anchored in humanity, I feel like it, it really is a blessing that you're probably not aware of the folks that are are hanging on that as maybe the, the the relief of the day to, to turn away from the news and that sort of thing. But you're good at what you do, that you can continue to push your doubts aside and stay disciplined enough. And I'm glad that Chuck Glory is haunting you into being good at what you do. <laughs> yeah. I would encourage you, Al, that those projects that you just sloughed off as after you retire are probably going to be the pieces that you're the proudest of. Yeah, yeah. Put them up on your outline board and give yourself the gift of of doing something for yourself as well. Well, thank you, Pat. That's great. Do you have anything else to share with our listener that might give them a little creative boost or jumpstart? I will say this. As you get older, the more you realize uh, what's important. It's a weird thing like when doing comedy. It's so subjective. And listen, listen to yourself when writing comedy, but also know that your audience has to get – like you're trying to get – an audience to think something as funny as you are, as you do. So when you're when you're writing comedy, performing comedy, keep yourself in there, but know that there's an audience that you're trying to reach. So always humanize it, always connect them. Always remember that, yeah, you can make your friends laugh because they have the same experience and same everything as you do. But if you could reach other people, that's a that's a 
that's a it's a nice skill to have. It's a nice it's it's if you can make other people laugh and 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 help other people get through their day. It's a it's a wonderful thing. It really is. It is. Well, listen, a manja manja on your pizza making over there. I right, will do. I, I imagine you're searching to make the rustic Italian style pizza that you oh, yeah, enjoy. The, when Naples, you're... yeah, no, it's it's. I got a, a wood fire oven and everything. It's it's a wonderful thing. I've been gluten free for a while though, so it's like sort of. Oh well, it, if I knew that, I know a you fun talk free guest. Yeah, uh, I know it's terrible, and because of my gout, it's like uh, uh, it's a, I have gout, which is a terrible thing, awful. There's nothing more interesting to hear about on a podcast, <laughs> especially on the sign-off, than a guy, a comedy yeah. writer's gout. Yeah, yeah. So eat less. If I can have anything, is eat less sugar and beware of gluten. That's my advice for young writers. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for sharing your your time and your tidbits. <laughs> You're the best, Al. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage and so